0: have some very special regards for my wife for you. I told her that you were here. She's excited and she's wishing you all the very, very best. And she said, retirement is no option for talented people like you. You need to get rewired, she said. Well, good afternoon. Do you remember I told you a little story this morning about to live is to give about the elderly gentleman, and this gorgeous, uh, sophisticated lady, the eye candy. Some of you came to me after and said, what is this eye candy all about? (laughs) (laughs) Only men understand this, I think. (laughs) I want to tell you another short story. This is many, many, many years ago when a scoop of ice cream cost just 10 cents. You have this 13-year-old. He has been dreaming about going to this brand-new ice cream parlor. It was just brand-new. They never had anything like this before. And he saved his money, and he was going to have those special ice cream scoops with the whipped cream on top. He comes to the ice cream parlor. He settles down. He's pretty excited about it. And then the waitress comes. She's very, very busy. She has a lot of people there. And she appears to be a little bit impatient. And uh, she said, tell me, what do you need, young man, for, for what do you need to have today? And uh, he says, um, I, uh, I like to have some ice cream with whipped cream. And how many scoops do you want? And he said, um, hmm. he looks into his pocket and he says, what does it cost? 3 Scoops and some ice cream, and just thirty-five cents. He looks at his money. He counts it. He puts it away. Then he says, um, "Can you make it two scoops and some whipped cream?" He says, "Okay, two scoops of ice cream and whipped cream." Yes. And she disappears. She brings the ice cream. Two scoops. And some whipped cream. He enjoys it. And then he goes back to where he came in, to the cashier, and he pays his 25 cents. He had checked his money very carefully and he had noticed that he had two dimes and three nickels. That was 35 cents. A scoop would cost how much? Ten cents? Three? He said no, plus whipped cream. That would have been 35 cents. He had 35 cents. He had three dime, two dimes and three nickels. He pays the 25 cents at the cashier, and then he leaves. The waitress comes back. She is really rushing around. She cleans the tables, and as she comes to the place where the young boy had sat, she noticed there was some serviette there. There was some paper toilet there, and she takes it away, and there she finds a dime. To give is to live, but to give with integrity. This boy understood integrity. He had been well taught and he practiced what he had learned. The issue in life is to match up precept with practice. Concepts with implementation. Otherwise, we lose our integrity. He was a young man of utter integrity. My presentation this afternoon is coming to you in the context of the great controversy. Just imagine for a moment that uh, the mayor of New York City, he has just attended a city council meeting, and there he finds himself embroiled in a very high-volume heated argument with one of the councilors over several decisions that he had made. And the counselor points the finger at him and shouts at him, you are corrupt, you are selfish, you're using your office for personal gain. You know that none of this is true. The mayor was a man of integrity. The man was an honest man. He lived by the highest principles. He had never had anything like this on his mind. He only worried about the welfare of the citizens entrusted to him in this big, great city. And the next morning, when he picks up the New York Times, he finds the headlines. And the mayor reads for himself, accused of spreading all kinds of things, dishonest, corrupt, looking for personal gain. Selfish. The mayor is shocked. He turns to the governor of New York and he says, I don't really understand. And then they discuss the strategy. Maybe we can bring out the National Guard to surround the person's home, the counselor's home who has been spreading all these rumors. That's one way to let the counselor know that this is unacceptable. But here's my question. Would these so-called solutions of surrounding the house of the counselor to intimidate him, maybe even to put him at rest, would that have been a real solution to reestablish the the good reputation of the mayor. Because if he would have done that, then it would, have had, it would have spread the name of the good mayor all over the New York Times over the next few days and weeks. There would have been many in-depth investigations into the character of this mayor, his home life, and maybe every aspect of his performance as a mayor. Are you with me? Do you see what I'm trying to suggest? By the way, we have too much echo here. If we can change that, please. Of course, this is just an imaginary story. But thousands of years ago, God faced just such a problem. The most honored angel in the universe accused him of being unjust and demanded that he, Lucifer, would be placed in God's place on the throne. The question then is how should God respond to these false accusations? Why didn't he just zap Lucifer and it would all be taken care of the minute he rebelled? But would have that solved anything? Or was it important to let the seeds develop and grow so everybody looking on would see the justice of the God who endured? This afternoon I want to close my series by focusing on the kind of God that I have learned to love and to appreciate. I want to take you to the New Testament. I want to take you to the uh, book of Luke, Luke 15. This is not the usual health sermon, but maybe it is. Because my, situ- my set- suggestion I want to make, my proposal today is that the way you view your CEO makes all the difference of how you relate to the world and to the area where you live and where he helps you. I remember the Los Angeles Kings uh, uh, hockey team. Uh, they hadn't produced anything in 25 years. And, uh, you know, I have, uh, as a, uh, with the German background, uh, uh, soccer is sort of one of our favorite sports. When the German national team loses, the whole country goes into a uh, national depression for a few days. So it's, it's a big thing there. And soccer was not very well, uh, uh, much uh, popular here uh, when I grew up uh, or came later on here to America. And so I took sort of a liking, liking to, uh, to the hockey field. So the LA Kings, the Los Angeles Kings... Then not produced anything. I would go there once in a while, maybe once every six months. It was just a very special type of a thing. Non-productive. And then the Los Angeles Kings got a new CEO, and the very same year, they became the Stanley champion. They became the champion in the United States in hockey. And they said, oh, it was just a fluke. The next year, they were second And the third year, they did it again. And you begin to understand, oftentimes, whoever is in charge, the CEO sets the expectations. The CEO sets the level of character. The CEO sets the goals that are going to be accomplished. You have sometimes corporations that do very poorly, and suddenly they have a new CEO, and you see something's happening The company is doing very well. Leadership. Could it be that how we view our CEO, our God, that could have a powerful effect of how we implement the special guidelines that he has provided for us? And So that's what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about my God. I want to talk to you about my CEO. I want to talk to you about uh, the prodigal son the prodigal son's story. Actually, prodigal means extravagant, wasteful. You all know the story. It's probably the best-known parable that Jesus taught. And it's found in Luke 15. Jesus now has come to the end of his ministry. Jesus increasingly is now talking in parables. He knows his time is short, and he wants to reach the people, and he wants to reach all the people, and he uses parables. He tells stories. We talked about the idea, didn't we? You can give people a brilliant lecture. Yeah, you can. A scientific lecture about health. And then you you ask them the next day, how was the lecture? Oh, it was very good. Wow, how how good was it? It was very, very good. And what did you learn? I don't know. It was very good. (laughs) But you tell people a story, and they begin to remember Jesus was the master storyteller. He talked in parables, a literary device that um, talked about heavenly things in earthly terms. So everybody could understand it. You could have the shepherd in the field that understood the essence of the story. And then you have the theologians, 2,000 years later, they're still mining the depth of Jesus' stories. He was the master storyteller. And so now, Jesus, increasingly towards the end of his life, three more months to go, talks in parables. You see, Jesus finds himself moving towards the end of his life. And Jesus knows he has only one major calling, and that is to represent the Father. He knows him. He has lived with him from the beginning of time. Jesus knows the Father. The Father cannot reveal himself but through the Son. And Jesus now has the un- the enormous task. Towards the end of his life, two more months to live to fulfill his calling. And so Jesus is increasingly concerned. His time is running out. His ministry is coming to an end. How can I, who has been with the Father from the beginning of the world, how can I let people know what my Father is really like? You see, God the Father has gotten bad news for thousands of years now. He had gotten bad news. The, the media was not very friendly towards him. He was seen as a bloodthirsty tyrant. He was seen as the celestial accountant who looks down to see what we do wrong so he can zap us with his law. He demanded all these bloody offerings there. He was a psychopathic uh, a murderer. God, no. And so, this difficult time, Jesus comes. When the world is darkest, Jesus comes. Jesus always is available when the life is dark. He's available to us when moments are dark to brighten us and to warm our hearts. And so Jesus comes. He recognizes that the image of God has been totally distorted. He's no longer the loving and concerned Father He is the extreme vigilante who is meeting our justice. And as Jesus now moves towards the fullness of time, he talks in parables. And so we find in Luke 15, the parables, three parables, You know them well. The first one is about the good shepherd. 100 sheep, 99 are safe. One is lost. The good shepherd leaves the 99. And he moves into the dangerous terrain. And he finds the lost sheep. And he puts it on his shoulders. And he takes it home jubilantly. And Jesus says, that's what it's all about. Jesus says, and then... He carries joyfully the lost sheep on his shoulders. And when he arrives at home, he calls together all of his friends and neighbors to rejoice with him because the lost sheep has found the good shepherd, God the Father, always on the lookout for those who lose their way. And Jesus talks about the second parable, and he talks about a woman. She has ten valuable coins, nine are safe. One is lost. And what does she do? She takes a candle and she begins to sweep the whole house to find that one lost coin. And when she has found it, Jesus says here, well, in the same way, heaven will be happier over one lost sinner who returns to God than over 99 others. He talks about those sheep who have strayed away. Or take another illustration. He said, a woman has 10 valuable silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and look in every corner of the house and sweep every nook and cranny until she finds it? And then, won't she call in her friends and neighbors to rejoice with her? In the same way there's joy in the presence of the angel of God when one sinner repents. He says there's joy in heaven. They're throwing a party because the one who was lost has been found. Heaven rejoices. They're throwing a party for the one that had lost his way. And then to further illustrate the point, Jesus tells this story. A man had two sons. When the younger told his father, I want my share of your estate now, instead of waiting until you die, his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. You get the idea here? So this is a wealthy family. This is a uh, uh, well-to-do homestead. This is a a little mansion. Uh, This is a a, a young uh, two boys that grew up in a very affluent environment. And we're focusing on the younger one. He has everything he wants. He has more than he wants. I mean, when I was a boy, all I, the dream that I had in, in post-war Germany, I just wanted to have my own desk. Oh, that was my dream. This boy had everything. He had his desk. He had more than his desk. He had his own bedroom. He had everything he wanted. He had his stereo. He had everything he wanted and more than what he needed. He lives the good life. He's born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He has all the advantages that a young man could only dream of. But he is very, he's very ambivalent. He's not quite sure that he likes it all. Because you see, in his home, um, the father not only talks about the principles of success. Principles of success. That means if it is going to be, it has to be me. No shirking of responsibility. Young man, if you want to do it, you've got to do it yourself. Do it well. Don't blame it on circumstances. Pay the price and do what needs to be done. Take responsibility. Don't worry about the past. Now is the time. So the father really instills in this boy the principle of responsible living and working for a successful career. When when we talk about success, we oftentimes think in terms of material possessions. We're thinking about success and prosperity. But this father is different. He not only talks about the importance of, yes, to be a responsible person to earn a living and to make a contribution and the responsibility of getting a career. He also talks about the importance of the principles of significance. Significance is a little different from success. Significance has to, be, has to do with being respected, doing the right thing, uh, having integrity. Significance has to do with serving other people, ministering to others. Significance. To live a significant life You give, and as you give, you receive. But you don't give because you want to receive. That's manipulation. No, you have no expectation. You do what is the right thing to do. You give because that's the right thing to do under the circumstances, not because then you get another invitation. They come back, and they say, would you like to come to our house now since you invited us to your house last time? This is not it. This is doing things for people that cannot repay you your favor. You do it because it is right. now uh, the people in hollywood they don't understand this concept of to give us to live because when you give and you receive that's spelled happiness it comes to you you never looked for it you just do the right thing and all of a sudden you have this strange warming in your heart it feels good it feels right happiness peace doing the right things. People in Hollywood don't know what that is. I mean, they do anything to get into the news, no matter how scandalous the behavior is, no matter what foibles they have, they do it all in order to get into the papers because when they see their name in papers, they feel, I am still remembered. I'm important. important. They have not forgotten me. I am valuable. They miss the point. But this father was teaching his boy not only the principles of success, but also the principle of significance. When you look at significance, then education takes on a totally different meaning. Oftentimes in secular circles, you um, try to take all the education in that you can find so that you have a good career before you. You train for life. You train for making a living really, when you look at education through the glasses of significance, education is much more than that. Education is designed to empower us to be be more facilitative, to be more capable of being a greater giver to contributing to society, to contributing to the church, to contributing to God. That's what true education was designed to be. Yes, to help us to make a living, but more importantly, to make a life that lasts. And so, we find this young man, confronted by his father, a caring man, with the principles of success, material possessions, on one hand, and on the other hand, with the principles of significance. And he becomes increasingly ambivalent about these benefits. As a matter of fact, uh, he begins to call into question the parental teaching. He's at the university. He's 18 years of age. His peers, they all uh, affect his value structure And he begins to think about this father that is controlling him and is trying to tell him what to do. This father is telling him, son, nine o'clock is curfew time at our house. Nine o'clock, nine o'clock, that's when the party starts at the university. Why is my father calling all the shots in my life? Why is it that I have to drive my bicycle to the university? We could have had a BMW Z4. We could afford it. The other kids all have cars. Why do I have to pedal my way to the university? My father is controlling my life. I need to get out of this place. No more, mind, no more management. No more control. No more shackles of restraint. Freedom. Freedom. And liberty, and every young person has that kind of a call in their hearts. All the great uh, uh, poets uh, the, the, have written about uh, the freedom that young people seek for. And folks, if you have a teenager, don't get too worried about that when they have that same drive to push the limits a little bit. I remember my son. I'm in. He comes home one day, and he has a mohawk. <laughs> My son. I said, Lily, our son, a mohawk, and he's blonde. He's dark brown. He's blonde. I said, Lily, we've got to call this boy into accountability here. What are we going to do with him? She said, just relax. She's a psychologist in the house. Just Relax. I bite my tongue. I don't say anything. He's expecting something from me, but I don't fall into the trap. (laughs) Two weeks later he comes to me and said, Dad, I want to go for a walk with you. (laughs) He says, Dad, you know I'm getting into medical into dental school in just a few weeks. And you probably wondered why I had this mohawk. I've always been a pretty good boy. I've already pretty lived up to your image that you have of me and the image that you have in the community. I hope I have not disappointed you. But, Dad, listen, when I get into dental school in just a few weeks... I can never do this then because they'll kick me out. This is Loma Linda. You have to live up to the concepts. We are professional people. I said Dad, I'm so glad that you allowed me to do it. <laughs> I didn't say anything. I should have really given some credit to my wife. <clears throat> So you have this young man here. He's rebelling against the shackles of restraint. It's a normal, intergenerational aspect. Relax. Be kind. Be loving. And the more he thinks about the restraints in the Father's house the more he thinks about the shackles of control, the more he becomes resentful about this father. And so he discusses it with his friends at the university. And the more he does this, the more he becomes resentful about the discipline exerted in his father's house. And then, in a moment of anger, in a moment of madness, he storms into the library of his father, and he demands, Dad, I want the share of my estate now. Now. I mean, imagine what this boy is asking for. He's saying, Dad, you're in my way. Get out of my way. Give me what I want so I can live my life the way I want to live it. I have no respect for you anymore. The father is hurt, obviously. But the father has seen the trend. He has seen the headstrongness of this boy evolving as he interacts more and more in a secular environment with his peers. And the father deep in his heart knows that sometimes you have to let go and let a young person find out for themselves what life is really all about because life is a powerful teacher. And life takes us over the same roads over again and over again and over again until we finally learn the lesson. Isn't that what happens? All the things that we have talked about this week, you, know, you have known most of these things before because you have had some wonderful um, uh, health uh, uh, teachers here at camp, haven't you, in the last few years? Amen. But maybe it's time now to put the hammer down <coughs> and say, you've heard it often enough. I could have made some of these changes two, three, four years ago and I didn't. And now I'm on medication. Now I'm a diabetic. Now my weight has gone up. Now my marriage is kind of uh, uncertain. Life takes us over the roads over and over and over again until we learn the lessons that we need to learn. And so the Father Seeing the headstrongness of this young man, with a heavy heart, he calls in his attorney, his estate planners, and he said, I want to sign the papers. They prepare the papers. And the father could have done something totally differently. When this young man stormed into the library of his father and said, Dad, I want it now, the father could have said, well, nice trial, sonny. First, I have to go. Then mother has to go. Then your older brother has to go. And then what is left may come to you. That was Jewish law. But the father was a wise man. He understood. And he calls the son into the library. And he says, I have the paperwork here. But I really want to appeal to you one more time. You may not really fully understand what life is like. Life is a tough teacher. You may have some very romantic notions. Once you've got that money in your pocket, then everything is going to be okay and you can do whatever you want to do and you have freedom, no more restraints, no more control, nothing. You are your own man. Son, it's not quite that way. Dad, nothing personal. Yeah, come on. Nothing personal. Yeah. Nothing personal, but I got to be free. I got to learn the lessons of life in my own terms. And so he takes the papers. There are only three more things to do. Number one, he goes to the bank, he turns the papers into money. Now he has everything that he wanted swaggers, money. Galore. One more thing to do. He needs to go to the DMV. He needs to get the uh, driver's license. So he takes the driver's test. He passes it. There's one more thing to do. He has to go to the BMW dealership. (laughs) And he sees that beautifully blue-minted sports coupe, the Z4. That's what I want. Now he has what he wants. He got the money. He has the car. And he has girls galore. He has friends galore. You're never assured of friends when you have money and you spend it. Now these are not real friends. These are parasites. These are opportunistic people. They just come around to you. They know where the honey is. And the bees come. And then Jesus says... So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. But a few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and took a trip to a distant land. Just think about this. He doesn't even want to be close to the father and mother anymore. I mean, this is a good father. This is a good mother. He doesn't want to be even close. He doesn't want anybody to look over his shoulder what he is going to be doing. He's going to be free. license. And he packs his belongings and he's gone. As far away from the parental house as he can get. And then Jesus says, He packed all his belongings. He took a trip to a distant land. And there he dissipated and wasted all his money on parties and prostitutes and riots of living. He had a ball. Parties. Easy girls, anything he wanted, he had it because he had the money and he had the car. And what happens next? The money runs out. His car is being impounded. And the rats are leaving the sinking ship. (laughs) Friends, questionable friends. Friends are people that stand by your side and they listen. Listen. They may not even offer sometimes counsel because sometimes not even that is appropriate. Sometimes a person in emotional despair just needs to know that somebody is there sitting with that person and holding their hand. It has to be appropriate friendship, especially at that time. And now, he's penniless. He's broke. His friends are gone. His fair weather friends gone. And he's broke. And he is broken. The party is over. He is destitute. He is despairing, and what once was a moment of madness when he stormed into the Father's library now turns into a period of deep sadness, from mad to sad. And then the Bible says, about the time his money was gone, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve He persuaded the local farmer to hire him to feed his pigs. Now, do you see what's happening here? You have now an economic depression hitting the country. There's no stimulus package coming from the government. Respectable jobs are very difficult to find. And he eventually signs on with one of the local farmers. This is not a Jewish farmer. This farmer takes care of pigs. Jesus is using the pig here to signify how deep this young Jewish boy has fallen. I mean, in the Jewish thinking, you would ever even want it to be seen in the shadow of a pig as a Jewish boy. It was the ultimate insult. And Jesus says, he cannot find a job. He's so desperate. He doesn't have any skills. He has been a student all these years. And now he's looking for some money to bring home the bacon. And he signs on with the non-Jewish farmer. Just think of it. The most despicable of all animals in the Jewish theological thinking, the pig. He's taking care of pigs. The ultimate insult to this once arrogant hulk of a young man. Dad, I want it now. Taking care of And then Jesus says, the boy became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the swine looked good to him and no one gave him anything. Just imagine this boy growing up in an affluent home. He had everything he wanted. Now he's envious, he's jealous of the pods that are being fed to the pig and no one gave him anything. He lives with pigs. He smells like pigs. Oh, if he only had some cologne or something. The shoes no longer work very well. The sandals are gone. The shirt is tearing. He is shirtless now. Everything is falling apart. This is what happens to people that only know themselves and are committed to self-serving. To live is to? There's a difference between life that makes you better and life that makes you bitter. One letter difference, what is it? The letter I. If it's self-centered, then you open the door for resentment and for your rights, and you become bitter, and you expect everything to turn around you. You are in the center of the universe. We are not. This reminds me of another story. Another young man, 18 years of age. He has um, a high volume discussion with his father and mother. And he says, dad, mom, I need to get out. I can't take it any longer. You are controlling me. There's too much restraint here. I need to be free. The same intergenerational conflict in that home. He leaves the house and he lives it up. Wine, women, and song. Drugs and everything. But before he leaves the house, the father says to him, Look, son, I don't think you understand what life is all about. But if that's what you want to do, you want to learn the principle of life on your own, we let you go. But we want you to know there's a key underneath the doormat at the end rear end of the house. And just so that when you come back that you know we're still thinking about you, we're going to have a yellow ribbon in the tree in the front yard. Dad, nothing against you, but I've got to get out. He does, and he lives it up, and he has a miserable life, and he finally comes to senses, and he begins to turn around. He comes around the bend in the road. He looks for that one yellow ribbon in the tree in the front yard. And the whole tree is filled with yellow ribbons. And he knows he is accepted. He is still loved. And he moves to the back door. And underneath the mat, there's the key. He opens the door. And there is his father and mother, Billy Graham, and his wife welcoming their son, Franklin. Franklin who then recently took over the uh, evangelistic leadership of the Billy Graham programs. Franklin Graham. And Then the Bible says here in verse 17, when he finally came to a census. Now folks, this is my time to turn over to you. I want you all to talk to each other Two people. I want you to talk to your neighbor, to your neighbor, to your neighbor. Talk to each other. We'll give you two minutes. What brought this young man to a census? And I will ask some of you, so be sure you take the time very productively, because I'm going to ask you in two minutes. Please take the time. Two minutes. What brought this young man to his senses? Because the Bible says, when he came to his senses, how do you come to your senses? Your time. Okay, let me ask some of you. What thoughts have you had? So he comes to a senses. How does he come to senses that light now gets turned on? He begins to see himself in a different way. What helped him to come back to senses? How about you? Would you give me some ideas what your partner there suggested to you? Okay, so he hit bottom, he began to realize that he was suffering the consequences of his actions, a sense of awakening of responsibility comes into his life, how about the gentleman there, yes, what did the person next to you suggest to you, how did he come to his senses? I see. Uh, The answer here is he began to realize that the grass was not greener on the other side of the fence. Okay. That's good. Okay. What else happened? Yes. Back there. I beg your pardon? (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Well. That, that's a secondary gain, right? I, he never thought about this, but it's an interesting idea. Somebody else. Well, thank you. This is very creative here. Okay. Yes. Yes. Oh. Yeah. He remembered the Father's love. He remembered a good home life. He remembered that the door was probably still open, even though he had messed up. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yes. So he remembers the goodness of the Father. It was imprinted on his brain as a boy, right? Reliable, trustworthy, loving. Yes. I believe it was hunger, but not just a physical hunger, but a spiritual hunger that could not be fed with the money, the girlfriends, the, the friends, and the riotous living. Very good. Some very good answers. Again, summarize that in two, wor- two words. Hunger. Hunger, not only for the bread, the food, but for the spiritual bread, right? Hunger for being accepted and being loved. To fill that big hole inside, right? Very good. One more. Yes, the gentleman back there. He gave up on himself and Mm. he had to turn to somebody else. Mm. He recognized he couldn't do it himself anymore. He couldn't do it by himself. He had to reach out. Well, I'm sure there are many, many reasons. I think he probably remembered being in the there, He probably remembered the comfort of his home. He probably remembered the many servants there. and They all were fed very, very well. And here he is starving and he has nothing. I think he was concerned about his existentialistic concerns. Didn't have a roof over his head. Didn't have any clothing properly anymore. He smelled like a pig. He lived like a pig. It was terrible. Existentialistic awareness creeps in. But I think there was much, much more there. And I think you pointed that out very, very well. Uh, and that is that he probably remembered the love of his father and mother. He began to think about he was not such a bad man. And he was a counselor in, in the city council. He was respected. My father was a good man. He t- tried to teach me the principles of success. He didn't, want me to, he didn't want me to be a slouch. He wanted me to stand tall and take good care of myself and my family someday. He taught me the principles of significance, of how to be a person that is giving rather than looking always for number one. He taught us the concept of happiness. Happiness comes to you because you never look for happiness. You cannot seek after happiness. The moment you do, it evaporates. You can only do the right things, the happy things, the good things, the things of integrity, just like the little boy in the story with the ice cream. And then all of a sudden, a strange warmth, as Wesley used to say, fills you, happiness. He thought about his mother. Yeah, my mother, she was a good woman. She was the head of the library there. And every night, she would read me and my, my, my brother uh, some of the Uncle Arthur's bedtime stories. She read the Bible stories to us. You know, my wife, regardless of how busy she would be at 9 o'clock or around that time, she would always spend 15 minutes with Byron and 15 minutes with Carmen every day. It was part of her religion. It was part of her way of life. My daughter is doing the same thing. She was doing it when the kids were just two years of age. And I said, Carmen, you're wasting your time. They don't understand. You're overloading their neural circuits. Uh, don't do it. And she said, Dad, you don't understand. I'm the developmental psych- psychologist. <laughs> you shape. You shape the values. They will stay with people for the rest of their lives. They are very difficult to extinguish. You can cover them up, but at the right time, they bleed through. Folks, you've been praying for your children, and you've become discouraged sometimes. Don't forget that there's hope. God has his own timing. Keep doing what you're doing. As miserable as he was, this young man finds hope in the conviction of his father's love. it it was that love that drew him home. Unconditional love. And then the Bible continues to say, he said to himself, look, at home, even the hired men have food enough and to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Humility is setting in. He's no longer the arrogant hulk of a guy. Father, I begin to understand who I am and who you are. I'm no longer being be worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired hand. I'll be facing the community. I'll be facing the servants. I'll be facing the people in the family that I've screwed up. I came to your library in a moment of madness. And I ended up in dire sadness with these pigs. And I'm willing to come home and face the music. And then the Bible says, So, he, got." words. He got up. What are the three words? He got up. You know, you can do all kinds of dream building. Oh, some of these days I'm going to do something about my health. Someday I'm going to make some changes. Sometimes maybe, like this lady suggested, maybe we do some fasting or so. There are some very interesting ideas that are coming into the scientific literature. Uh, uh, maybe someday and you begin to talk about this to yourself and say, maybe someday I will. Yeah. And nothing happens. It all evaporates. You promised your wife for months I'd cleaned the garage. And now It's years! The garage is so full, you can't get anything else into it anymore. I mean, I'm always amazed, coming from Europe, in Europe, the most valuable thing, a car next to the house, as, as far as material things go, we place into the garage. Here in America, you put the garage outside, and you put the junk into the garage. What are we thinking? And so she begs him, what are you going to do the garage? I'm going to do the garage. Nothing is going to happen. And you know what? She's losing confidence in you, and things are no longer as smooth as they used to be. He's not reliable anymore. And gradually, atherosclerosis of emotions begin to settle in. We talked about that this morning, right? Unless you make a plan, nothing is going to work. As a man that made a commitment to clean out that garage, you have to look at your calendar and say, When will I be at home? When can I do it? And you put it in your calendar. And this time you put down, I need at least four Sundays now to clean this garage. It's so loaded up with all kinds of junk. I need four Sundays. And you put it down, Sunday from 8 to 8, I'm going to work in the garage. Next Sunday, I'm going to work from 8 to 8 and take care of the garage. The next Sunday, Have a garage sale. Now, that's an interesting idea, too, yeah. Mm. Now, just in case that you ladies feel that I'm just zeroing in on the men. You know, in California, it's quite often the case that the women take down the Christmas lights. Now, maybe they, you don't do that here, but that's what we do out there. You know, I travel through La Melinda and in many, many homes, the Christmas lights are still up there. And now you, you, your husband says, when are you going to take those Christmas lights down? You know, the real thing he should do is say, honey, when can I help you in getting the lights down? And she would say, well, just, you, you just do it. <laughs> so, you see, so she is looking, well, it's already June now oh, it's not any, any use anymore to take him down now. It's almost December again. We'll just leave him up there. <laughs> Folks, you see, we've got to put the hammer down. We need to make a decision and do it with health. You know, you know that these arteries are clogging up with the kind of diet that we have slipped into in our society, even our Adventist society. You know that you want to do something about those potlucks, but you don't want to disturb anybody. And so... Why don't you just make a plan and find two or three friends and say, you know, how could we do this in a nice way? No, don't take all the stuff out that you know shouldn't be there. No, that's too radical. But begin to make changes gradually. You know, be gentle about this. People that are health reformers are always the most gentle people. If they are not, they forfeit the office of being the director of health services. In all sincerity, the director of health services has to always be the most gentle person. Yes, we have goals. Yes, we have ideals. But we find a methodology that brings everybody together on the road to a brighter future. We are not jackhammers. Uh. That's why so many pastors, they're actually afraid when somebody talks about health. no, I don't want anybody to talk about health because it splits the church. Because I have some of these. Remember, health reformers are always the most gentle people. In the CHIP program, our facilitators, we tell our facilitators, you tell the people that are graduating, unless they are gentle, therefore feet to call themselves CHIP graduates. Our biggest worry in the CHIP program is that the people get so excited about the health message when they see those beating hearts that I showed you there and the arteries that are plugging up there and they pull out the atherosclerotic plaque. They get so excited about it, they tell all their friends. And then when they want to invite the friends to come to the CHIP program, they have no friends left. <laughs> because they didn't do it right. You have to wait for the right moment. The the health message is like a diamond. Like many diamonds. And they make a beautiful necklace. But you have to place the diamond, the necklace, into the hands of the people you love at the right moment. And not all at once. Maybe just one pearl at a time. And then pray. And God will take care of it. So, the Bible says. So he got up. Yeah, you have you are concerned about diabetes. You have a special program in this conference here called uh, reversing diabetes, don't you? What are you waiting for? You need just a few weeks, and you will see your blood sugar will drop down, and your physician has to reduce the insulin and the medications. In almost every case, it's a very consistent pattern. We have 85,000 graduates in our CHIP program. We know exactly what happens. We have published 45 scientific articles in medical journals. We know how it works because it's the Lord's ordained work. So he got up. He got up because he had his back against the wall. You know, sometimes God allows us to become defrocked. We have to become humbled. We become shirtless. Sometimes we have to be without everything that was important to us, which made us so self-sufficient and arrogant so that we may now see the beauty and the true meaning of life and to see the Savior waiting for us. So the Bible says, so he got up and he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long distance away, his father saw him coming, his heart pounding and was filled with loving pity. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus talks about this father, the father that was so hurt by the young man says, I want it now. You're in my way. Get out of my way. The father, his heart is still beating for that son. And he sees the son, and he's on the terrace. And a Jewish man was not really allowed in that culture to get off the terrace and to run towards someone. That was not very dignified. He would do it in a very dignified manner. He forgets all about the cultural norms. He only sees that boy because, you see... He has been looking for this boy day after day. And every day he would ask the servants, please bring me the binoculars. And every day he scans the horizon. Every day he has done this for weeks, for months, for years. Now he has become, the old man has become an old man. He has no arthritis in his knees. He can hardly walk. He's legally blind. The cataracts have taken over. Even so as he does every day. He asks the servants, please bring me the binoculars. And they put him in the chair. They lift him on the porch, and he scans the horizon. Poor old man. You probably have Alzheimer's now. Sir, you're blind. What do you want binoculars for? And you just don't understand, unless you're a father or a mother, it's not about the 2020 vision of the eyes, it's about the 2020 vision of the heart. Their father will always be seeing their boy, regardless of how, how blind he is. And he takes the binoculars and he sees the bundle of a pitiable bit of humanity coming around the bend in the road. Bend over, humbled, shirtless, no sandals anymore. He comes around uh, the bend, uh, and the father only sees, not the shirtless boy, he just sees his son. And he runs towards him. He forgets about his arthritis. He forgets about the fact that he's legally blind. Only one thing is, on my, my son, my son, he was dead, and he is alive. My son, let's celebrate. Isn't that what the Bible says? I mean, this is a glorious picture from madness to sadness to gladness. And here you see it now. And while he was still a long distance away, his father saw him coming. His heart was pounding and was filled with loving pity and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. The son had lots of time to think about what he was going to say to his father when he would come home. He had made the speech in his mind. He had repeated it many, many times. It was a good speech. It was a speech of humility. And then the father said, "Psh! It doesn't matter. The father only had one thing on his mind. Protect. My son, from the eyes of the family members and the community, he's, he's half naked. He doesn't have the sandals on, a sign of uh, belonging to a family. He doesn't have the ring on in his finger anymore. He doesn't have a shirt on, and he smells terrible. And the father, has only one thing on his mind. I take my robe of righteousness and put it on my son. Jesus. What is he trying to do? He's trying to help us to understand this kind of a God. He's not a bloodthirsty God. This is not a God that is the celestial accountant that's looking for the things that we do wrong. He's not a a psychopathic murderer. No, God is a God who loves and cares and, and is waiting for us. But his father said to his employees, Quickly, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him and a jeweled ring for his finger and give him some shoes, all signs that he was still belonging to the family. He was not disowned as he deserved. He had wasted the money that the father had given him. And the father said, No, you are reinstated. The father responded to the riotous living of his son with riotous loving. That's God. That's my CEO. And I do whatever I can to follow through on some of the guidelines that he helps me to understand. It's no longer about, well, but I like to taste my M&Ms, and I'm going to have them until I die. I die for them. It doesn't, yeah, you do. (laughs) And all the other things too. No. Your heart has been softened. You're no longer the redneck. (laughs) The arteries, the spiritual arteries, have opened up again. And the flow of love can flow through these spiritual arteries and nurture you. And imperceptibly, you become a new person as you nurture this newfound peace in your heart Day after day with morning and evening devotions. And your life becomes transformed. You become a nicer person. You treat your spouse in a totally different manner than you have for the last 45 years. The edges have become roughened. <coughs> Go to marriage encounter if they still have it. And then they give you an assignment. Why did you fall in love with this man? What were some of the things that you enjoyed? Oh, I forgot about those. Yeah, that's what it used to be. And then there have been disappointments. There have been a breaking of trust. And yet the call comes to us as I extended to you this morning, forgiveness. Forgiveness. You can do anything that is so bad that you cannot forgive if you're imbued by the Spirit of God. Oh, you say, but I can't forget. I understand. But you don't have to nurture it. And you will gradually forget more and more. It becomes extinct. It is gone from your mind. It flashes in once in a while. But you say, Lord, that's gone. He's my spouse. We all make mistakes. I want to close. Oh, I love this story. And then the Bible says, so he put the jewel ring on his finger, he gave him shoes, he gave him the finest robe uh, that he had, and then he killed the calf... Been but he said, kill the cop. We're going to have a celebration. Now, I think the Bible should be rewritten here. This should be a standard deal format here. Uh, but it's celebration time. With a fatted cop? Yeah. I don't really understand this, it, but it's okay. Let's acknowledge it. It's the Bible. It says it right there. From, from madness to sadness to gladness. You see here the story of a prodigal father. The title is wrong. The title says the prodigal son. No, it's a story of a wasteful father. He wastes everything that he has. He responds to the riotous living of a son with riotous loving. He's giving us a second chance. And you say, I've already had too many second chances. He'll give you a thousand chances. You said, I already had a thousand chances. My commitments that I've made are just like ropes of sand, they always collapse. I don't carry through on things. Don't worry, do it again. He is there. He does not count. He is there. He's just waiting. met him on the plane. He was a young man. Tattoos all over him. I don't like tattoos personally, but somehow some of these young people like those things. And how do you get engaged with a person next to you when you have a five-hour flight? Do you just sit there? Or do you begin to say, hey, wow, you have some very interesting tattoos. Now, tell me, and there's some unusual colors. Uh, uh, is it very painful? Um, what does it take? How long did it take to get all these tattoos on you? I've never seen tattoos like this. The best. I got the best tattoos. <laughs> what does it cost? And before I know it, the plane lands. And I've become sort of a mini expert <laughs> in tattoos. But before he gets off the plane, I said to him, now, tell me, uh, these tattoos, can you, can you erase them? He said, it's very difficult. It's very painful. It could lead to infections. Basically, what you have, you have. I said, so, uh, I see you have a lady's name on there, a girl's name. Is that your wife? No. Oh, it's your girlfriend? used to be. Are you in a relationship right now? Uh, I'm working on it. Oh, what about the name of that former flame? Oh, I'm wearing long-sleeved shirts. (laughs) (laughs) But those shirts will come off someday, won't they? I hope so. (laughs) And then... The Bible says in the living Bible paraphrased I have tattooed your name in the palms of my hands you are mine (coughs) shall we pray oh Jesus what a picture you have painted for us to have a better picture of what your father is like Help us to fall in love with this image of God. Let the Holy Spirit shine into our hearts to bring us into harmony and into fellowship and friendship with you on a daily basis. And then when we fall by the wayside, remind us that you're always there and you'll pick us up. Your name is trustworthy, and our name is engraved, tattooed in the palms of Jesus' hands. Amen.